From the University of Toronto, I'm Randy Boyagoda, and this is What Now? It's a beautiful afternoon here in the city. I'm walking towards the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, what used to be called Ontario Teachers College. Hi, Ruben. Hi, Randy, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Excellent, excellent, happy to be here. Ruben Gastambide Fernandez is Professor of Curriculum and Pedagogy and Editor-in-Chief of the journal Curriculum Inquiry at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education here at the University of Toronto. Currently, he is the director of the Youth Research Lab at OISE's Centre for Urban Schooling, where he is principal investigator of the Youth Solidarities Across Boundaries Project, a participatory action research project with Latinx and Indigenous youth in the city of Toronto. We were in Boston more or less at the same time. I was at BU for oh, really? my doctorate. Oh, okay. So I was there from... 99 to 2004. Oh, yeah, so basically we all yeah. up here. Yeah. 99 to 2006. Yeah. I had a lot of friends at Berkeley and I, I was part of a band, this no Latin, Latin music band with a guy who was from Berkeley and did that for a while even after graduating. So tell me, how do you think our sense of what school is has been changed by the pandemic? And in what ways maybe for the better and what ways for the worse? Well, you know, school is... Schools as we know them, as we've thought of them, um, were, were an invention of the 19th century. And, and unfortunately, they haven't changed that much. Um, they're still, you know, was, we, we sometimes use the metaphor of driving a Ford Model T mm -hmm. on, a, on the Autobahn. <laughs> we, we want schools, as we imagine them in the, in the 19th century, to address 20th and 21st century problems, but they weren't that they weren't meant to address. And and I think we very seldom stop to think about that. So stop. what were they meant to address in the 19th they century? They were meant to address the integration of uh, growing populations. Uh, you know, the, the model that we know of schools came from the from the Prussian Empire, uh, which was undergoing a tremendous shift because of the Industrial Revolution. And they were imported to North America at a moment where not only was uh, the Industrial Revolution expanding the kinds of needs that nations needed, but also later in the 19th century and the turn of the 19th century to integrate migrants. Mm. Um, and, that's, and so schools, uh, in, 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 in essence, were uh, an integration institution, right? They were an institution that sought to create conditions for people to be integrated into the societies mm -hmm. that were growing in increasing complexity, where the economy was, uh, the capitalist economy was growing, where different kinds of jobs were needed, and, and schools were intended to yield people into that system, a system that was inherently unequal, for mm -hmm. one thing, right? And therefore, schools were sorting mechanisms. They're still sorting mechanisms to this day. Schools were uh, deeply hierarchical. They're still deeply Ooh. hierarchical, as they were. Uh, and, and they operated through a kind of factory model, right, mm -hmm. that evolved in concert with schools and with capitalists. Now, would this be true as much for a, a fancy boarding school, a tiny urban parochial school, a standard issue government funded public school? Is it the same or like what do you see as differences or similarities then right. and now maybe? Lots of differences. So I... I even, even at face value, when you look at these uh, spaces, so you walk into a school in Toronto and you see this massive brick structure that almost to some extent resembles a, a prison or perhaps some kind of foreboding castle mm -hmm. uh, uh, with windows. You show up at the campus of Bishop Strom Academy or, or you know, 
Upper Canada College or any of the boarding schools. And these are luscious green fields mm -hmm. with gardens and columns and statues and classical architecture, mm -hmm. right? And open spaces. So, so even at the, at the level of, of what these spaces look like, these are profoundly different institutions, but they still as a whole play, played, have played and continue to play a similar role of sorting society and mm -hmm. organizing society, specifically a capitalist society into a class order, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you don't go to Upper Canada College and go back to picking up trash, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you go to Upper Canada College and maybe you become the owner of the company that owns mm -hmm. the trash trucks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so in that sense, in terms of the function of a system of schooling that includes all the schools that you mentioned, the system is the same. And of course, the kind of education that happens in those places is fundamentally different. Even when sometimes at face value, the curriculum might be the same. The interactions are quite different. So you walk into a school uh, downtown, a public school, uh, chances are that you're going to walk into a classroom and find the chairs arranged into rows. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you're going to find a classroom with a front where the teacher stands. You walk into a place like Upper Canada College, you're going to find a, a, a room with a table in the middle, more mm -hmm. it looks almost like a boardroom. Sure. And you're going to find students sitting around that table having a conversation where presumably the teacher is a kind of equal participant in mm -hmm. that conversation where there's sort of no hierarchical order. So it's so, kind of elite and progressive at the same time. That's right. So in fact, some people call those pedagogies, uh, pedagogies of the elite, you know, mm -hmm. sort of uh, pedagogies of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. So they may, be, they may be talking about Shakespeare in the classroom and the, you know, public school and at the school at Upper Canada, but how that conversation is unfolding is it's radically completely different. different. So now what about now? Well, I, I think the pandemic um, has required that educators in, in, every, in all institutions uh, think deeply about why they do the work they do, how they do it, and, how do you, and, and I think more, more specifically, how to use technology to do that, mm -hmm. and how to sort of rethink uh, the pedagogical and curricular work of schools uh, through technology. Uh, Unfortunately, my fear is that uh, the pandemic has not in any way led us to a conversation about how to make schools more equitable necessarily. Mm -hmm. And that in fact, what we've seen throughout the pandemic is that uh, those with privilege have been, have been given the affordance of many more choices, of many more ways of kind of rejigging the way in which they access schooling. Back in the fall, I was visiting with a friend from graduate school, a roommate who is now principal of one of the largest public high schools in Southern New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And a, in, a, in a predominantly lower class, lower middle class socioeconomic situation, minority majority school. And early in the pandemic, somewhat out of the blue, stacks and stacks of Google Chromebooks were, were delivered to the school. Wow. Just as a kind huh. of, here you go, we're going to help get through Do this. something with it. <laughs> More or less, yes. So very quickly, these were distributed. And, you know, they, they, on the assumption that a lot of these families wouldn't, or a lot of these students, even if there was a computer at home, mm -hmm. larger families, multiple siblings, whatever the situation sure. is. Sure, sure. And, and so he said, you know, it, it kind of worked out okay, but he said the most interesting or unexpected thing for me, not for him, was the number of these, because they were, they were, they were tracked, mm -hmm. The number of these that were found at the end of the school year in pawn shops around the town. <laughs> and it was the speed, he said, with which either the students or their families realized, right. well, you know, like what could what could we do with this yeah, money that's instead? Right. That's right. And very quickly pawned them. And it, it just it really gave me 
pause when it comes to kind of the the, the, the technocratic solution-minded right. approach. Right. If we just give them a bunch of tech and make a gauzy video about it, right. we're going to solve something here. Right, right. And the interesting thing is, you know, and we learned this fairly quickly, uh, well, we, we knew this uh, while we were doing our work, but it became very evident as we were transitioning our research with, uh, with young people, was that, you know, young people of all, of all class structures and of all positions are extremely adept at technology, at the technology they have access to. Yeah, that's a good right? way to put it. Mm -hmm. not, not, not necessarily all technology, but the technology they have access to, they're extremely adept to it. And given the opportunity to decide what to focus on and how to use that technology, you can learn a lot by mm. paying attention to what they actually do with it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the Youth Solidarities Across Boundaries project. Yeah, the project started as an outgrowth of an initial investigation that we did on behalf of the Toronto District School Board to try to understand why it was that uh, Latinx immigrants were not completing school within the four to five year time frame that typically is expected, and high school specifically. Many of them were either not finishing or they were taking longer to finish than, than, than other, and other groups. And this was true for, at the time, this was back in 2010, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, it was uh, Latinx students, uh, black and indigenous students, just so you know, everybody knows. Um, and then also, interestingly, Portuguese students uh, or, or, or students of Portuguese descent. We, we realized at that time, and I was fairly new to the Canadian context at the time. I come from Latin America, but I, I didn't really know Canada or the history of, Cana of Latinx migration in Canada all that well. But I realized there wasn't really that much literature. And so we did this work to try to understand, mm -hmm. you know, why were the reasons. And we wrote a report about that. When we went back to the students to say, here's what we learned by speaking with you. Uh, at the end of the session, when we the, when we asked them for questions, and they said, "Well, so what are we doing next?" You know, hmm. they were like, "Are we? What are we doing about this? Right. You know, what are we going to do next? What are you going to do next?" Yes. You know, they really held our feet to the fire, and so we went back to the school board and we said, "Look, we we would be willing to teach the young the youth uh, at the schools how to do research mm -hmm. if you are willing to give us the the resources that we need and the access to the school and to the students. We will give sure. our time to teach the uh, the the students to do their own research and to continue this work based on the students' own interest." And that's how we. That's how the work initially and started. It, and it continues. And it continues. So it, it did. We did that for about two years, and then we wanted to, in conversations with the board, we said we would like to expand this. We decided that a natural ex growth of that work was to work with urban indigenous youth, because mm -hmm. many Latinx immigrants are themselves indigenous to the countries they come from, and because so many of the problems are, are similar and the same. Uh, and so over time, we uh, had the groups running parallel. Eventually, we joined them together. And so we did that for 11 years. In fact, the last group that we did uh, did their presentation of their research projects the week before the shutdown oh, wow. <laughs> in March, that yeah. first week in March of 2020. And so at that point, uh, we had an opportunity to continue working with some of the youth uh, mm -hmm. to do some evaluation of the work we had been doing for those 10 years. Uh, but as the pandemic was affecting sure. everything, and also we felt uh, a very strong commitment to keeping the young people that were working with us employed and paid, sure. especially during that time, and making sure that they had access to money, uh, we decided to hire them to do their own project. And okay. that's the point where we said, what do you want to research? Yes. They said, we want to figure out what our peers are experiencing mm. with the pandemic. And we said, well, what do you, how do you want to do it? Well, we're going to use WhatsApp. We're going to use WhatsApp and we're going to use um, 
you know, iMessage and these various text forms. And they, they devised, based on the technology that was accessible to them and that was available to them, and fully aware of the limitations and in terms of like, well, you know, I don't have as much data, they don't sure, have as sure. much data, so let's do it this way. They came up and they designed a whole study that wow. they then implemented and collected data and analyzed it and used visual materials and were in constant touch with their friends. So, you know, when you create a space for young people to determine what is it that they want to know about, they are in incredibly creative. You know, now the students know that there's a different way of doing things, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember during the recruitment sessions, particularly towards the end, where the students were showing up and they're saying, you know, my, my friend told me that, that you guys do this, and I don't believe it. I just had to come and see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't believe that is true, you know? Uh, and th there was always a kind of hesitation always at the beginning of the project, you know, especially when we said, when they would say, you know, so how are we going to be marked? They would say, well, how do you want to be marked? Mm -hmm. You know, what projects do you want to do? How should we mark them? How, what should be the terms of engagement here? Where they were like, what? So what happens when you disagree with them? I'm curious. Last question. We negotiate, you know, it's, it's we negotiate. Uh, when we disagree with them, we say, well, here's the parameters. Here, here are the expectations. One yeah. of the, one of the ch biggest challenge of doing this work within the context of schools is that the premise of participatory research as a participatory, democratic, dialogic, negotiated space are antithetical to an institution that is highly hierarchical, very regimented. The big brick uh, building. That's right, uh, where, where authority relationships mm -hmm. are clearly prescribed. Uh, and so one of the biggest challenges, when, especially when conflict arises, is being able to say, okay, here's what we want. Here's what the institution requires of us. How do we get what we want within the parameters of the institution? And that's usually where the most difficult negotiations happen. But the best right? outcomes too. That's right, and we did incredible work. What Now is a production of University of Toronto Communications. It's hosted by me, Randy Boyagoda, and produced by Lisa Lightborn. Follow us and listen wherever you get your podcast. I'll say this nights, tell it in a letter, stamp and mail it out. We did our best, couldn't have done better, I think we should.